So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over a hundred episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Anna Mae Aquash had been asleep in her tent when the raid happened. I was awakened around, maybe around five in the morning, by someone saying that they were the FBI and that I should immediately come out. And uh, I was in bed and I just heard a lot of voices all around. And when I heard someone say, let's just cut it, cut cut open the tent, you know, and I was trying to get out of bed and over at the door before they start cutting the tent. And uh, when I walked out, I saw two FBI agents standing there with uh, M16s and uh, pistols. It's September 1975, and just a few weeks earlier, two FBI agents and one member of the American Indian Movement had been killed in a shootout in Oglala, South Dakota, about 100 miles away from where Anna Mae had been sleeping. And that triggered perhaps the greatest FBI, most intense FBI manhunt in the history of the Bureau. That's Kevin McKiernan, a journalist and filmmaker who's been covering this story for decades. The FBI badly wanted to know who had killed two of its own. And one of the people the Bureau wanted to talk to above all was Anna Mae Aquash, a Mi'kmaq woman from Nova Scotia. They pulled her out of her tent as they pulled apart the camp looking for weapons and explosives. 
during their search, they emptied the medicine bags and threw about medicine pipes and confiscated eagle feathers and um, varieties of beadwork and those objects that are used in sacred ceremonies, they just uh, dumped and allowed to just fall off of objects and they just didn't seem to care. They they seemed to feel that uh, they showed that they had absolutely uh, no respect for these objects. And they found what they were looking for. Just in Anime's tent, there was a sawed-off M1 carbine, three hand grenades full of shrapnel, and 150 sticks of dynamite. Agents allegedly put an M16 to one person's head while they interrogated him and joked about shooting others. The agents took Anna May to an FBI office in Pierre, South Dakota, and interrogated her. Anna May asked for a lawyer, but she said she was rebuffed. And uh, he told me that uh, I could not make my telephone call unless I talked to him first. And I told him that, uh, you know, they can't do that. The agents weren't particularly interested in the weapons they found. It was the shootout at Oglala that they were focused on. And uh, he started referring to the uh, June 26th uh, incident that happened in Oglala where three people were killed and... uh... Anna May had been a prominent member of the American Indian movement for years, and the FBI believed she might know who had shot those two agents. First he said, I want to talk to you about an incident that happened in Oglala on June 26th where two people, two men, were killed and I told him, well... There were three, and uh, he said, okay, three. Anna May was reminding the agents that three men had died during the shootout. Two agents and an indigenous man. They didn't just ask about the shootout, they wanted to know everything about the movement. It is not only the raid that uh, they seemed to be interested in, there were a lot of other things about Indian people in general uh, that they are very, very concerned with. The... uh, The American Indian Movement, they are very, very concerned with that. But Anna May said nothing. Finally, I just just refused to talk, and uh, so he left me alone. She was eventually released on bail. Afterwards, she called up her sisters in Nova Scotia. Speaking in Mi'kmaq so the law enforcement that she knew was wiretapping her phones couldn't understand, Anna May told her sisters that she was afraid. But it wasn't just the feds that scared her. Quote, these men that are in the woods all over this place want to kill me if the FBI don't get me first. Anna May had good cause to fear for her life. By the end of the year, she would be dead. And 30 years later, we would finally find out who pulled the trigger. But that's not the same thing as knowing who's responsible for her murder. Few people born in the land we call Canada have inspired more than Anna Mae Aquash. A teacher, an activist, a mother, a revolutionary, she's been the subject of so many songs, books, and films. And Aquash was at the center of one of the most significant indigenous movements of the last century. The story of her death reveals the brutality of colonial rule but the story of her life is an example of a woman rising above that.
I'm Archie Mann, and from Canada Land, this is Commons. We also have tonight one of the strangest stories to come along in a long time. A group of American Indians has taken over the town of Wounded Knee in South Dakota, and they have been holding it for nearly a whole day. About 50 carloads of Indians came to Wounded Knee last night. Most of the Indians were members of AIM, the American Indian Movement. This is where the television crews await the hour-by-hour events in Wounded Knee. This privileged position is protected by the Indian chiefs. Clearly, the chiefs are anxious that this rebellion and its outcome receive as much publicity as possible. The militant American Indian movement called this meeting to seek the support of the tribal elders of the Pine Ridge Reservation for a bold plan to force federal attention to Indian demands. Sometimes there has to be violence to force the white man to listen. But we seize wounded knee. Either we force the federal government to kill us all once again like they did 83 years ago at Wounded Knee, or else they come out and they negotiate and meet our demands. The occupation of Wounded Knee, South Dakota in 1973 was the biggest indigenous rebellion in the U.S. or Canada in the last century. It would go on for for 10 weeks, more than 10 weeks, some 71 days. It was a totally unpredictable outcome. That's reporter Kevin McKiernan again. He was the only journalist to stay inside of Wounded Knee throughout the entirety of the occupation. What had started as a protest against a corrupt tribal government had turned into a revolutionary call for indigenous sovereignty and an end to systemic oppression by the U.S. government. Led by members of the radical American Indian movement, indigenous peoples from across North America flocked to South Dakota to take part in the armed uprising. And one of them was a young Mi'kmaq woman from Nova Scotia named Anna May. I was there sleeping on the floor of a trailer, and in came new people who had penetrated the FBI cordon at night, smuggling food and guns into Wounded Knee, and that was Anna May and her, and her soon-to-be husband, Nugishik Aquash from Ontario. And they ended up in the same little trailer living room with me and two or three other American Indians, and that's how I got to know her. She was shy in some ways. She was a short, pretty woman in her late 20s. She loved children. She was very good with children. She really had her own way. And I think the reason that I got along with her and we had some simpatico was that we were both in our late 20s and the majority of the others who were there were uh, either teenagers or in their early 20s. And so there's quite an age gap. And so she and I were probably about a year apart in age. And so I think that it was that more than race or nationality that uh, made a connection for us. Anna Mae Picto, as she was known at the time, had left her two young daughters in her sister's care to join the fight. She had a leadership quality about her. She wasn't just someone who showed up for Wounded Knee. She'd been involved in the movement for, mm, well, at least a year, probably two years before this. Here's Regina Brave, an Oglala Lakota activist, speaking in the 2002 documentary, The Spirit of Anna May. 
I think it made a difference in the lives of my people that here was this woman from basically uh, another country. Well, Indian people were all one country from Canada clear down to South America, but uh, here she was, some you know, so far from home and willing to help people around here. She had young children, and, I, and you know, to, to our people, you know, when, when someone commits like that, it, it's a sacrifice because the priority is all the people, and our children are, are also the people. Anime Picto was born in the Indian Brook Reserve in central Nova Scotia in 1945. Here's Jake Maloney, her first husband, speaking in that same documentary. Well, when I first met Anime, uh, I met her at the Indian Day School, and she was a student there. She had just gotten here from Picto, as I found out later. Life on the reserve was difficult. There was uh, no electricity. She didn't have any electricity, no running water. The only people that had electricity was the, uh, was the nuns, the priest, and the Indian agent, typically. Our people were used in a very bad way them days, you know. I don't think they were treated properly. At 17, she went down to Maine to pick berries, something many Mi'kmaq people did for work. But she decided not to return to Canada and instead moved to Boston with Jake Maloney. Her and Jake got married, had two daughters, and settled into life in the big city. She always were joking all the time. She could always act like this this Jackie Gleason guy. <laughs> and you wouldn't picture it, but she could always act like this Jackie Gleason and do, do this walk that he used to do. Eh? That was really, that was really funny. Yeah, that was really funny. <laughs> and I mean, we would have sore bellies from laughing. When she had children, the children became paramount, you know. She was a grizzly bear mom. The marriage fell apart quickly, but it was during her time in Boston that Anna May first discovered the American Indian Movement. In the 1950s, the U.S. government forced hundreds of thousands of indigenous peoples off of their traditional lands and into big cities. Most were met with poverty and police violence. It was in that context that the American Indian Movement was formed in 1968. Here's Kevin McKiernan again. The American Indian Movement started in prison in Minnesota, and people had all these same experiences in their communities, whether or not they were from Minnesota and whether or not they were from Wounded Knee when it got to that part, they were all telling the same story. The particular facts may have been different, but the major story was a story of of being put down, a story of, of enforced shame. I mean, the ghetto in Minneapolis, which was called the reservation at that time, if you walked into those apartments where Indian families lived, you would see Toilets that were broken, I don't mean they didn't work. I mean that it looked like somebody had taken a sledgehammer and, and, and split the porcelain apart. There were rats everywhere. The front yard was a junkyard. They didn't get uh, city services. There was a tremendous amount of discrimination. This was an area that was off limits for, for most people and largely forgotten. The founders were charismatic young men who rallied indigenous communities to fight back against discrimination. There was Russell Means, Dennis Banks, and Vernon and Clyde Belcourt. 
They were full of passion. They were really devoted to change. And hundreds and hundreds of indigenous people in Minneapolis took up the banner and joined the fight. Though Means and Banks and the Bell Courts got the lion's share of media attention, most of the organizing work was done by women. People didn't have to be told why they were doing it. They knew from their own lives, from uh, the squalor and from the oppression, why they were doing it. And they wanted to do something. They wanted to change. They had been in the gutter so long that they just wanted something that would change this. And they had their own particular facts, but the overarching reason was the same. Soon, AIM was spreading throughout North America. One of the first was the occupation of uh, Alcatraz Island at the end of the 1960s, which they overtook and reclaimed the American Indian Movement and other groups did as a recapturing of native land. That's Steve Hendricks, the author of The Unquiet Grave, The FBI and the Struggle for the Soul of Indian Country. And they said it was a perfect symbol of native land from the American point of view because it had no resources, it had no arable soil, it had no economy, it had no services. And it it really captured a lot of attention. In 1970, AIM held a protest on Thanksgiving in Plymouth, Massachusetts. They dubbed it the National Day of Mourning. And it was there that Anna May first got involved with the movement. Anna Mae had been working as a teacher and an organizer in Boston's indigenous community, and she was taken with the American Indian movement's radicalism and sense of purpose. Within two years, she was taking part in the Trail of Broken Treaties, a massive protest march across America that ended with Amers occupying the Bureau of Indian Affairs in Washington, D.C. It was during this time that she fell in love with Nagishik Akwash, a Chippewa man from Ontario. When the Wounded Knee occupation began in 1973, there was no question for Anna Mae whether or not she would go. So her and Nagishuk took off for South Dakota. There are few places more evocative of the violent colonialism indigenous peoples in North America have been subjected to than Wounded Knee, South Dakota. It was there that in 1890 the United States Army massacred around 300 Lakota people, half of them women and children. Since then, the U.S. has stolen almost all of the Lakota traditional lands despite binding treaties and the Lakota were forced onto reservations that held only the most economically disadvantageous land. By the 1970s, reservations in the U.S. were ostensibly governed by elected tribal leaders, but the real power was in the Federal Bureau of Indian Affairs that held vetoes over all tribal decisions. The councils and presidents of those tribes tended to be composed of corrupt officials who were enthralled to the BIA, corrupt officials like Dick Wilson, the tribal president of the Pine Ridge Reservation. He was a cartoon caricature of a villain, sort of a, I don't know, a Rob Ford or someone like that, right? Just someone who might actually sort of be kind of fun in a bar if you could divorce all the politics and evil from it. Wilson engaged in cronyism, sure, but what made him different was the brazenness of his corruption and the brutal lengths he was willing to go to enforce his rule. He also happened to have the full support of the Bureau of Indian Affairs. 
in the early 1970s, there were, in fact, a couple of things that happened on Pine Ridge that drew the attention of AIM and got AIM to come to the reservation and take part in the protest. One of these, for instance, was the killing of Raymond Yellow Thunder. He had been picked up by a group of rednecks who wanted nothing other than to beat up an Indian. Was driven around, beaten up, let go. They picked him back up later, roughed him up some more. Many people had seen him throughout the course of the night, did nothing to help him, and uh, eventually the next day he died. This led to big protests that AIM held uh, on the Pine Ridge Reservation and in the nearby border towns uh, to protest these conditions. And when that happened, when you had however many hundreds of people from AIM descending on this Indian reservation, that got everyone's attention. Dick Wilson in the tribal government, the FBI, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, all of a sudden, Pine Ridge became ground zero for the American Indian movement. An impeachment effort against Dick Wilson failed, mostly because Dick Wilson had overseen his own trial. And AIM-led protests were often met with violence by Dick Wilson's goon squad. The goons took that label uh, on their own shoulders very proudly. They said goons stood for Guardians of the Oglala Nation, is what the acronym was. These goons would go out and they would deliver beatings, probably killings as well, of supporters of the American Indian movement and of general Indian rights on the Pine Ridge Reservation with complete impunity. The U.S. government stood firmly behind Dick Wilson and would provide the goons with guns and ammunition. So in February 1973, AIM leaders met with the traditional chiefs of the Oglala Lakota to decide what to do. The eldest of them, Chief Fool's Crow, had a message. Speaking in Lakota, he told them, Go to Wounded Knee and make your stand there. That's what happened. Uh, From this meeting, a caravan of cars went off with a bunch of guns and pulled up to the hamlet of Wounded Knee and occupied it and held it for 70-odd days against the forces of the U.S. government and tribal government. This wasn't a peaceful protest. It was open rebellion. On one side were members of the American Indian movement occupying the site of one of the worst massacres in U.S. history. And on the other was an array of opponents— there was Dick Wilson and the goons. What is the mood among your people at this time? They're very ticked off. What are they doing right now? Shining their guns up. And right alongside them was the FBI, the Bureau of Indian Affairs Police, the U.S. Marshals, and even the United States military. When Kevin McKiernan arrived at the Pine Ridge Reservation to cover the occupation, he was shocked. I had never seen uh, so many people with guns, and some of the first time when I approached the Indian roadblock, I had a rifle leveled at me, and I had never had that happen before. There was a lot of adrenaline. I felt scared. I felt interested. I felt curious. I felt cold. The perimeter was very tightly sealed at that time, but you could gain passage if you were credentialed by going up to the roadblock. Your name was on a list there. There was a jumpsuited marshal there who wrote down the amount of gas in your fuel gauge, and if you came out with any less than that, then you were considered to be consorting with the the other side. 
And uh, so we learned to park our cars next to a building so that we could come out and with the same amount of gas that we came in with. Wounded Knee became a global media sensation, with the vast majority of the U.S. public actually siding with the occupiers. The U.S. realized it was losing the propaganda war, so they banned all press. No media in Wounded Knee, period. Is it your contention that the Justice Department may regulate the press whenever it chooses to? I think uh, the authority of the Department of Justice to keep the press out of Wounded Knee uh, is based on uh, any civil disorder or disruption where you're interfering with the federal function. AIM believed this was a prelude to a massacre. We knew that a put-off, a stalling tactic would happen once there was no threat to any other lives other than Indian lives. You are going to walk away from here and say, after a while, dok yellow, you know? And we're not going for it. Kevin McKiernan was determined to get back into the camp. I met a part-time a medicine man who actually, whose full-time job was working in a gas station. And somehow he trusted me and he brought me onto the Underground Railroad on the reservation, which was a network of people who were not actively facing the uh, agents who were on the reservation, but who were working to support those who were. They were around 100 miles away from Wounded Knee itself. And so my guide uh, took me through the snow and I had a very bad cough at the time and we tripped one of the thermal sensors and flares went up over our head and pretty soon there there were agents in Jeeps who were all around us and we were lying in a gully and um, my guide took a towel and stuffed it in my mouth so they couldn't hear me coughing. And we could hear the agents talking. Where are they? They're over here somewhere. We know they're here, that sort of thing. And uh, I thought that I was watching all this on, on an old movie somewhere. I couldn't believe I was actually the person that was doing this. So I was way over my head. He finally made it to Wounded Knee a little after dawn. And it was over the next month that what had started as an occupation turned into a siege. They cut the water. They cut the electricity, they cut the gas where people didn't have propane tanks to keep warm, and they certainly tried to cut down the food. But at night there were hundreds and hundreds, it seemed like thousands of bullets that were coming in during during the night, and they were tracers, uh, with tracers every fifth or sixth bullet. So it was kind of a light show that looked oddly fascinating in some ways, and and of course it was very, very scary. In the morning, the Indian children would would pick up the spent government bullets and they had this had their own make-believe game of marbles they would do with the federal bullets that came in different sizes. So there was really a David and Goliath situation and Goliath had all the armament. They had a stranglehold over uh, food and water and electricity and they had hundreds and hundreds of law enforcement people there it was during this time that Anime Picto and Nagishik Akwash arrived in Wounded Knee. 
Nagishik couldn't make it in through FBI lines. Uh, remember, I had told you that we barely, I and my guide barely made it in before it got, got light, at which time you could be seen by binoculars. And she and he did not quite make it in, and they had to lay out in the field in the wintertime for an entire day for it to get dark again for her and Nugishik, her husband-to-be, to get into Wounded Knee. McKiernan shared a trailer with them and a few others, sleeping on the floor on a shag carpet. Immediately, Anna May made an impression on everyone around her. She had a good sense of humor, but she was it wasn't one of those, you know, slap your knee kind of senses of of humor. It was more of a sophisticated sense of humor. She was she was very intelligent. Anna May was experienced, charismatic, and intelligent. But many of the men within AIM believed it was improper for women to take a leading role. Here's Regina Brave again. I used to argue with the men there that if women decided to pack up and leave, wounded knee would fall apart because the women were the cement that held it together. You know, we cooked, we cleaned, we uh, taught the men how to chop wood, for Christ's sake. But also, I fought to carry a gun because uh, among the Lakota people, we've always had this society called Chante Ohitika. That's the women's society, brave-hearted women, and there were women warriors. But Anna May, like many of the other women in the American Indian movement, pushed back against those limits. She was adamant that she was not just there to play a little woman's role. She did not come just to do the dishes. She wanted to have a gun and be in a bunker and do all the things that all the men did. It wasn't all fighting, though. Anime Picto and Nagishik Akwash got married at Wounded Knee. McKiernan was their wedding photographer. And so the, so the, the marriage took place in the, in the village trading post and... Wallace Black Elk conducted the ceremonies and in speaking Lakota and then sometimes speaking English. When you hold this, you dedicate yourself to each other in the eyes and ears of the people, and you dedicate your life in the eyes of the Great Spirit. I cannot grant divorce. I don't have that power. Now the Great Spirit will recognize you with this sacred seal. So you will continue to live on forever and forever. But the siege continued. The occupiers were running out of food and ammunition, and a Vietnam veteran named Buddy Lamont was shot dead by government agents. So in the end, after the death of Vietnam vet Buddy Lamont and the intervention of his mother, who, who knew uh, AIM leader Dennis Banks and other AIM leaders, and the letter arriving from the White House promising an investigation of treaties, plus an investigation of of the corruption on the reservation in the Wilson administration. I think adding all that up, the leaders realized that the that the game was up and that they had to get out. Peace at Wounded Knee. On Wednesday morning, the government will remove its blockade around Wounded Knee, and the Indians in that small community will lay down their weapons. The breakthrough came when a letter arrived from Washington, a letter promising that White House officials will come to Wounded Knee for talks about Indian problems. The longest act of civil disobedience in American history had come to an end. But for Anna May Akwash and the American Indian movement, this was just the beginning of another long and bloody chapter. After Wounded Knee, it was civil war on the reservation. 
from the point of view of Dick Wilson and and the goons, it was payback time. They had been sidelined during Wounded Knee. They had not been allowed to finish the job which they wanted to do. The FBI don't get them, the Ogallalas will. What do you mean? Just what I said. We have our own way of punishing people like that. Shooting on the reservation? You said it. We'll take care of them. During the next two years, the Pine Ridge Reservation had the highest murder rate in the country. They called it the Reign of Terror. There were drive-by shootings beginning right after Wounded Knee. Every time you would be in a car with, with people, and even if they were people you knew, they had guns in the car, and you know somebody would be blowing a hole in the roof because he forgot to put the safety on. Somebody was, uh, somebody else was looking out the window and shooting out a, a street light. There were Molotov cocktails that were thrown by the goons into houses that were occupied by AIM supporters, and you would quiz people whenever you saw them what they saw up the road. Who's up there? Can I go that far? No, there's an hour of daylight left. You better not. You better stay right where you are. You can go early in the morning when there's light and people, and it'll be safer to go. We are very used to hearing about the FBI SWAT team. And what area was chosen for training? The area that was chosen for training was the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. That's where the SWAT members got their 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 knowledge and and according to the American Indian movement and their supporters, they got it from kicking in Indian doors. Twenty four hundred FBI agents had been rotated through the area, a shocking number considering how isolated that part of South Dakota is. But the law enforcement had no interest in solving any of the murders, especially if the victims were affiliated with the American Indian movement. And I'm talking cases where there was one case with a girl named Marianne Little Bear, who's nine years old. She was shot in the eye by a goon, managed to get away with her life, but, you know, lost her eye. And the federal government and tribal government wouldn't even look at her case. I mean, we're talking the most innocent of victims would not be attended to. Instead, the FBI had a singular goal, bringing down the American Indian movement from within. Even during Wounded Knee, paranoia within AIM was rife. So to give you an idea of the atmosphere that existed at that time, if I was talking to you and I just wanted to insult you, I wouldn't call you maybe a jerk or an ass. I would call you a snitch. And and this is just normal conversation. Some of it even was playful. Oh, you're just an informer. You're an informer. You're an informer. You would hear the word informer dozens of times in a day. Uh, People just used it very, very loosely. AIM had good reason to worry. They were a subject of COINTELPRO, the FBI program used to infiltrate civil rights and radical movements and turn them against themselves. It's the same program the FBI deployed against Martin Luther King, the Black Panthers, and anti-war groups. Ames head of security, Doug Durham, was revealed to have been an FBI informant and provocateur from the very start. I was a paid FBI operative operating in the American Indian movement at the highest levels. And Amers and their family members were constantly under surveillance. 
Here's Minnie Two-Shoes, who was a publicist for AIM in the 1970s and would go on to investigate Anna May's death. And then, you know, tap your phone, follow you around, harass your family. Everybody that was in the movement, man, your relatives, your grandma, I don't care, they go see your grandma at 6 o'clock in the morning. <gasps> Do you know this person? Oh, yeah, it's my granddaughter. Well, where is she now? Where did she go to school? What did she do? The FBI had illegally and thoroughly infiltrated the American Indian movement. Government records show that at some AIM meetings, the majority of people present were secretly working for the government. It was in this environment that Anna Mae Akwash continued her work in the movement. She shuffled around Canada and the U.S., engaging in AIM-led occupations in Wisconsin and Kenora, Ontario, working at an indigenous school in Minneapolis, and continuing to come down and work with the people in Pine Ridge. She rose up and became close to the AIM leadership. And she became a target of the FBI herself. Not only was she being watched closely, but her family in Nova Scotia was also being surveilled by the RCMP. She started going by Joanna Jason. Everything would come to a head in August 1975. There were two locomotives speeding toward each other, and one was the clampdown from the federal government, which was just hell-bent to destroy the movement. And on the other side were people in the American Indian movement and their supporters who were carrying on an armed struggle against impossible odds and had turned to tactics that accelerated their train. And those two trains hit at Oglala and crashed into one another. McKiernan was there the day the conflict between AIM and the FBI came to its dramatic climax. I was there doing an interview and had just left an hour before when the in invasion of, of law enforcement took place and that all-day firefight commenced. I'm at the BIA roadblock. I can see the house surrounded by the FBI. Now you can hear the fire. The BIA agents are going behind their trucks. The only vehicle outside of three BIA police cars is mine. I'm behind that at the moment. Here they go again. The BIA has told me I better move back. At this rate, there's surely going to be some blood spilled here. Two FBI agents chasing a pickup in an undercover cars, unmarked cars, wearing civilian clothes, raced onto the property of the Jumping Bull family, and uh, a firefight commenced. I saw part of this lying underneath my pickup truck outside the Jumping Bull compound. There was just a tremendous amount of gunfire. The first thing I saw was the body of Joe Stunts, the American Indian Movement member who was, was lying in the mud there, all um, in, dead, and I photographed uh, him, and then they, they made me leave the area, and I hid the film, and I drove to a neighboring state of Wyoming, and went about 150 miles around, and came back into South Dakota, and then went right to the airport and put the film on, the, on a plane. 
At the end of the day, two FBI agents and one American Indian Movement member were dead. AIM leaders went on the run. Anna Mae hadn't been there that day, but she also went underground. McKiernan saw her one last time that summer at a powwow in Minneapolis. And I uh, saluted her and said, uh, oh, hi, Anna Mae. And she said to me, Kevin, my name is Joanna now. And she backed away from me. And I realize now that she had chosen to carry on the armed struggle. And whereas a lot of others had returned to their communities and were acting in other capacities. Despite her commitment to the cause, Anna May began to have tensions with the AIM leadership. Like a lot of other women within AIM, she became disgusted with the hypocrisy of some of the men in the movement. Here's Minnie Two-Shoes again. you got to understand that there was this period there after Wounded Knee where some of these guys were getting pretty outrageous, quite frankly. Quite frankly. I mean, you know, some of these guys, you know, 26 women, 26 children by, you know, how many different wives. and uh, There was a lot of you know, drinking. I, you know, I saw people that were drunk for a week and then sober up the next day they were down at Sundance, you know. <sighs> I'm serious, you know. So there was a lot of, for me, a disillusionment about these, you know, how could they do that? The paranoia around informants began to spread and suspicion started to land on Anna May. When Amers were arrested, Anna May would be released early or be given lighter bail conditions. Here's Paula Horn, a friend of Anna May's, speaking in that 2002 documentary. After Doug Durham was exposed, the paranoia began. Everybody was an informant. And I think a lot of people start using it. If they didn't like somebody, they would just say that. And of course, it would spread like wildfire, you know, moccasin telegraph. One of the leaders, I overheard them talking about Annie May. And they said that she was an FBI informant. And at that time, you heard rumors, you know, well, she got out of jail and they just let her go. And, and I remember Annie Mae telling me that they were setting us up. While she was on the run, Anna Mae visited her children one last time. Here's her friend Linda Maloney speaking in that same documentary. When the kids were playing, then we had a chance to talk. And at that point... She had told me that they, uh, they, um, the American Indian Movement had uh, were, you know, talking amongst themselves, whoever these people were, and they uh, thought that she was an informer. I said, well, why are you going back? She said, I have to go back, and I have to just let them know that they're wrong. That recording you heard of Anime at the top of the show is one of the last pieces of tape we have of her. She sounds exhausted by the treatment of Indigenous people by the government. I think that they most definitely want to uh, destroy a nation if it will not subdue to the living conditions of a so-called reservation and those that do not want those kinds of conditions for their their children or for themselves, then I think that uh, they definitely are out to destroy that concept of freedom. Jake Maloney, the father of Anime's two children, got the call in February 1976. When we got the news 
I brought the children in and I just said that, uh, I said, I got some terrible news about your mother and that uh, she was a warrior and she died in an Indian war. Anna Mae had been found dead on the Pine Ridge Reservation by a rancher. He uh, saw the body, knew instantly it was a body, and called the Bureau of Indian Affairs Police, I believe it was. And thereupon started a chain of events that's probably one of the most surreal in law enforcement works in um, the Bureau of Indian Affairs or the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Later, they would say that, well, there was actually only one officer or only one agent at the scene. They didn't want it known that there were all these people at the scene. She had a very obvious gunshot wound. Uh, There was blood on the ground. There was blood on her clothing. The bullet, people would later say, who saw the body, had uh, lodged in the front of her forehead and could actually be seen if you uh, looked at her forehead. And some of the agents who had been sent there were agents who had been involved in hunting for anime Aquash while she was a fugitive. So they had photos of her and knew what she looked like. Now, admittedly, she was somewhat decomposed, but by all accounts, she was uh, still very recognizable. So they took her to Pine Ridge, brought in the usual pathologist that they bring in from off the reservation to do autopsies. And a curious thing happened. The pathologist said, we cannot attribute any foul play to this death. She died of exposure. Also, we can't identify her. We're not going to take the time, the FBI and BIA said, to ask anyone to look at the body, to post pictures or, you know, basic descriptions of her. We're not going to um, take the most minimal steps at identification. So what we're going to do is we're going to chop off her hands stick them in formaldehyde and mail them to Washington, D.C. to see if uh, her fingerprints match our database. There was nothing wrong with her fingertips. They, they could have gotten prints there on site. There was no urgency to bury her. It was winter. Uh, it was easy to store a body at that time of year. But they rushed her into the ground, apparently, without even getting a burial certificate. I got a call in my Minneapolis apartment from a lawyer who represented Indian people, and he told me, and um, I got in my car and I I drove to South Dakota and I started looking into it and it just didn't add up. It didn't add up that someone with her knowledge and how good she was in the woods would have died of frostbite, and the FBI pathologist was saying that. But when I talked to Dr. Brown, the FBI pathologist, And I said, now that they've done a second autopsy and found a bullet in her head, what do you have to say about your conclusion that she died of exposure? And he said, I'm I'm sticking with that. And I said, well, how can you stick with that when they found a bullet in her head? And he said, they may have found a bullet in her head, but the proximate reason for her death was frostbite. And I said, well, how come you never mentioned the bullet? And uh, he said, well, he had inadvertently missed that. But nobody else who saw her missed that. And then what about the FBI agents who were there who recognized her from before? Was her body so decomposed they couldn't tell? They carried pictures of her and so on. So I looked at the pictures, and I could recognize her from the pictures. I mean, she sure, she was somewhat decomposed, but it had been cold out there, and she was still identifiable. And so 
all these things added up to a lot of suspicion that things were not, the official story was not holding up. Eventually, the government acknowledged that Anna Mae hadn't died of frostbite. She'd been shot and killed execution style. But the FBI and the Bureau of Indian Affairs said they didn't know what had happened to her. For almost three decades, no one would come forward to talk about Anna Mae's murder. And in the meantime, the American Indian movement fell apart. Charges piled up against Amers, money ran dry. And in her death, Anna Mae became a symbol. Songs were written about her. Hollywood movies were made with thinly veiled portrayals of her. Three grand juries were called, but no charges were laid during that time but rumors were spreading about what had actually happened. One of the most common was that the FBI had killed her. A documentary a few years after her death implied as much. It was only in 1999 that Russell Means, one of the co-founders of AIM, said publicly what many had known all along. Anna Mae Aquash had been killed by members of the American Indian movement because they believed she was an informer. Over the next few years, journalists Paul DeMaine and Minnie Two-Shoes uncovered much of the rest of the story. Here's Minnie Two-Shoes again. They found her body in February. By me, I already knew that it was somebody in AIM had done it. I didn't know who. And I, cannot, and I really cannot say who told me that it's something that is protected, you know, that I have never, ever, ever revealed who told me this. But it was somebody that knew. Somebody was there. Somebody that actually was, took part of the interrogation of her in Rapid City. And still, to this day, denies it. You'd be surprised how many people say, well, just, just lie. Just lie. After the shootout at Oglala, suspicion had fallen on Anna May. She, at this point, had been on the run in various locations. She was summoned to go to Denver. And from there, she was effectively kidnapped, taken from Denver to Rapid City by members of AIM, and there was a meeting held in Rapid City by a bunch of AIM people with her to interrogate her. And I think most of those people at that meeting thought that what would happen to her was what would happen to other informers that AIM had exposed within its ranks, which was they would be interrogated, they would be perhaps threatened, but they would be let go. Uh, No violence had happened to anyone else. Well, that wasn't the case with her. After this interrogation, she was driven from Rapid City to a house on the Pine Ridge Reservation and then to another house on the Rosebud Reservation that appears to be the house of Bill Means, who is the brother of Russell Means. Somewhere in that process, someone gave an order to kill Anna Mae Aquash, and three people left Bill Means' house on the Rosebud Reservation that night, Arlo Looking Cloud and John Graham and an older woman named Thelma Rios Clark. And they drove her out to a place in the, on the edge of the Badlands of South Dakota, but still on the Pine Ridge Reservation, uh, and shot her in the back of the head, pushed her body over a ravine, and drove off. She was killed in December 1975. Her body wouldn't be found for another two months. Arlo Looking Cloud and John Graham were eventually convicted of Anna Mae's murder. But questions still remain. Why did it take so long to get convictions? Steve Hendricks uncovered that the government knew far more about Anna Mae's murder than they had let on. 
The FBI claimed that they pursued all relevant leads in the murder of Anna Mae Akwash. Uh, the files that they released through, uh, to me through my Freedom of Information Act lawsuit show that they did virtually nothing. And in fact, worse than, than nothing, what I discovered was they had a tip um, shortly after the time that Akwash had died from an informer inside AIM saying that a woman, probably naming Aquash, but the name is blacked out in the document by the FBI, so I can't say for sure, but a woman had been kidnapped in Denver, taken to Rapid City, interrogated and taken out onto Pine Ridge and murdered, obviously Aquash, right? They knew this back in December of 1975, months before her body was found in February of 76. So imagine this, you had the FBI saying AIM is one of the greatest threats to the survival of the country, practically. They are doing anything possible to take this group down. And they get a very credible tip that AIM has committed, with the blessing, apparently, of its leadership, a murder within its ranks. Now, that would probably bring the group down. Why would you not investigate that, right? But they didn't do it. And they didn't do it probably because, again, this had worked just the way that the FBI wanted it to work. And none of the AIM leadership have ever been prosecuted for ordering her killing. You know, the people who are in prison for killing her are low-level foot soldiers in the movement. And she had a prominence that would have disallowed um, a random murder. And I wondered, in the end, whether... The delay of all these years was because the Bureau had a very big operator uh, in the American Indian movement who was still working for them, and they did not want to disclose that. And um, I felt that sometimes the program is more important than human life. So the fingerprints on that Saturday night special that shot her execution style in the back of the head. The fingerprints belong to members of the American Indian movement, low-level members. But there are also fingerprints that belong to government officials for succeeding in creating the climate that caused her murder to take place. The legacy of the American Indian movement throughout Canada and the U.S. is profound. Here's Regina Brave again. When it started, it just caught on like wildfire across this country. We all jumped on the bandwagon because, hey, this is what we needed. You know, Indian people needed to come together, stand together and fight together and start making the changes that needed to happen. And I would say 90% of the positive changes that happened for Native American people in this country was because of the American Indian movement. But the murder of Anna Mae Akwash will forever hang over the movement. And rightfully so. The people in prison for her murder were low-level stooges. Whoever ordered her killing has never actually faced justice. 
but AIM aren't the only ones responsible for her death. The evidence today indicates that not only did the FBI know who killed her, but that her death was an intended consequence of the campaign of sabotage they had been conducting on the movement for half a decade. That debate about who is to blame for her death continues to overshadow her life. She was a Mi'kmaq woman from humble beginnings who fought for what she believed in. She rose up in a racist society and a sexist movement. And had she not been killed in cold blood, Anna Mae Aquash would have been 75 years old this week. That's your episode of Commons for the week. This episode relied on reporting done by Kevin McKiernan, Steve Hendricks, Paul DeMaine, Minnie Two-Shoes, Catherine Ann Martin, PBS, and many, many others. This is one of the longest episodes we've ever done, but we couldn't even fit in one-tenth of what we wanted to talk about. The stories of anime Aquash, the American Indian movement, and the occupation of Wounded Knee are so worthy of more exploration, so please go read Steve Hendrick's book, The Unquiet Grave, go buy Kevin McKiernan's documentary, From Wounded Knee to Standing Rock, and watch Catherine Ann Martin's doc, The Spirit of Annie May. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at CommonsPod. You can also email me, Arshi, at CanadaLandShow.com. This episode was produced by myself and Jordan Cornish. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton, and our music is by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, please help us make this show. You can support us and get ad-free podcasts by going to patreon.com slash CanadaLand.